Well, look, y'all sitting up so close. I mean, Noah, you're always, you're always good. You always come right here to the front. You're eager to receive God's word. These folks over here, not quite so eager. But today, look at this. Try to teach your, treat you right so you, so, you don't, so you don't give up on this idea. We are in uh, week 24 of 52 weeks. I'm not going to go through the whole spiel. You know it. We're going through 52 weeks of lessons from God's word. Today we are looking at the concepts of predestination and election. How many of you guys have ever heard those two words, predestination, election, a few, two, three, four, five, more, more in this service than that at 930. Isn't that interesting? More people know those concepts. Next week, we're talking about the supernatural. Ooh, that's going to be fun, isn't it? going to be fun. So I want to tell you about an incident that happened earlier this week. I was together with some friends doing a Bible study. And before we, we have the Bible study, we usually have a time of communion. And, uh, and uh, just gathered around the table a short, a short time where we sort of have a, a thought about communion, and then we take it together, and then we open up God's Word, and we read God's Word and study it, and, and it was so interesting because we've been doing this for, I don't know, 10 weeks, and this last week, a disagreement came up about the way and the manner in which, and the who, in which we observed communion. It centered on two distinct personalities. Um, to be fair, both of them love God, and both of them deeply love his word, and both of them deeply value this communion moment, but both of them had different ideas about how to express that. And so the, the conversation started out polite, got a little more energetic, um, got slightly heated at one point in time, and, and I'm just sitting there, sitting back, listening to all of it, wondering at what point in time I would be required to step in, if at all, um, but also wondering about the other people around the table going, I wonder how they're processing this. These are other young Christians. What's their, what's their perspective of what's happening in front of it? Or... Um, as they're in front of them. So in, in the middle of that, um, I remember these words from the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Corinthians. And this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. And, and he's talking about his, his love for the, these Christians here. He goes, I would love to commend you in every respect. But he goes, I can't because when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you. And Paul says, I mean, <laughs> maybe sarcastic. He says, I get it, I get it. You all got to prove which one of you is more right than the other one. Even back then, Christians found a way to bicker. This instance, it was over the grace of the communion table. Um, but we found other ways to bicker. The topic that we're going to talk about today, predestination and election, both ways that we understand God's grace, has often been the source of this bickering ungraciousness. But they're important topics, and so we need to talk about them, we need to think about them rightly, but thinking about something rightly is not just about whether we've got it right. Thinking about something rightly also has a lot to do with how we process and pass on information. 
thinking rightly means that the way we learn, process, and share what we learn matters as well. And the way that it matters to God is sort of threefold. One, does the conversation that we're having with people that we disagree with still bring a smile to the face of Jesus? And it can. The second aspect is, does it, does it build up or tear down the church, the body of Christ, his bride? And the third aspect to me is, does it, does it lift up and point people to God's love? So we're going to look at those three aspects here. And here's what you need to know. Disagreeing with other Christians about other topics, there's nothing wrong with that. John Piper, a wonderful theologian, a man that I disagree with on a lot of points of doctrine, says this, though. He says, I don't think the world, people out there, unchristians, I don't think they stumble mainly over our doctrinal disagreements as Christians. I think they stumble mainly over the way we treat each other in light of those disagreements. And I would say I 100% agree with John Piper on that. How we disagree and still love each other is the topic of this morning's uh, sermon. So go ahead, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's the first story about Jesus, the gospel. The scriptures will not be up there on this passage. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, turn to Matthew 22. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig right in. Father, this morning we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that you, by your spirit, um, teach us and instruct us in it. Um, you use people and circumstances to give context to the scriptures that we read. And so we recognize those. But we also know that your heart is bound up in these. And so we want to know your heart on these scriptures as well. So as we talk about a topic that could potentially divide, we pray that we keep in mind that we are uh, in Christ, part of the body of Christ that he instituted, and we are in we are instructed and commanded to love one another. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am part of the Lawrence County Ministerial Association. Um, it's a group of, we average about 12 members at each of our gatherings, but the people who actually belong, belong to this 2025, not everyone can make it. In that circle, uh, our representatives, mostly pastors, from every, almost every church in our county. What I would say is this, that among the men and women gathered there, we agree on a few biggies. We, we agree on God. We agree that God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's the creator of all of this, and that's why we call him Father. Um, we agree on God, and we agree on Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, uh, who by his sacrificial death sort of redeemed us and made us able to go back to God with a clean hands and a clean heart. And we agree on the Holy Spirit, God sort of indwelling us and empowering us in a very special, unique way that is different than the way the Holy Spirit just works in the world generally. So the Holy Spirit in us is, is a very special way that God is present in us. Beyond that, we have a lot of differing opinions on a lot of differing things. Some of us hold to a very strict seven days of creation. First day, second day, third day, 24 hours. There are others who go, yes, maybe, but it's possible that those are seven figurative days. 
we disagree on baptism. Some people immerse, some people sprinkle, some people do it immediately, some people do it at some point in the next span of their life, they are baptized. We definitely agree on end time stuff. Probably in this room, there are maybe 40 of us, we probably all disagree on end time stuff too. We've all got our nuanced beliefs. So there's differences of belief among the end times, the second coming, what the rapture means, what heaven looks like. Um, and, and this is a big one. We have some disagreements about the Bible. You go, what? No, there's some disagreements about how we interpret key passages of the scripture. Even what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired, what do we mean by that? And there's differences of opinion about what that actually means. If you remember at the end of Jesus' life, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying there before he goes to the cross and he prays for his disciples, his followers, and he prays this, Lord, I pray that they would be one as we are one. And that, that prayer is the fire that burns underneath us when we talk about what it means to be the bride of Christ. However, it doesn't mean that we all have to think alike. Even Peter and Paul, these two mammoth, monumental figures in the early church, disagreed about something really important. They disagreed about whether Christians needed to be circumcised before they were really Christians. All that to say, sincere Christians are really good at finding things to disagree about. I, I heard a joke several years ago. You may have heard this joke too, but it talks about a guy who was stranded on a desert island. He's there for several years. Finally, he is rescued, and his rescuers are walking around the island with him, and, and, and he's explaining to them. He says, there's these three huts, and he, he goes to this first hut, and he says, this was my house. This is where I lived, and they toured. Oh, that's a great, oh, really very inventive. And they say, well, what are these other two buildings? He goes, well, this hut is my church goes, ah, oh, really? This is, this is great. This is great. What's that third building? He goes, ah, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> if you've never heard it, it's a great joke, worth repeating. But it's a reminder that, one, on a desert island, we can still find things to, to fight and bicker about, even if it's just with ourselves. One of the scriptures that we love to bicker about and fight about is this one in Matthew 22. You've got your Bibles turned there. Verse 14. And here's how the scripture reads. Many are called, but few are chosen. This scripture comes at the end of a story Jesus tells. So if you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read it. It begins in in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, the prince. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited, all the nobles of the land, to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So he sent more servants. He said, no, no, tell them. They, they, they've been invited, and I have prepared this dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Tell them to come. Come to the wedding banquet. But again, the nobles ignored the servants. They paid no attention And went off, one to his field, another to his business. And the rest of them seized the king's servants, mistreated them, and even killed them. Rightfully, the king was enraged. And he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament, you can already begin to see 
some corollaries there. But then the king does this. He calls his servants back together and he says this. The wedding banquet is still ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So now go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Ah, I love that. What a great ending to the story, except it's not. Verse 11. But when the king came in to see, to welcome his guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, well, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, my friend? The man had nothing to say in his defense. He was speechless. So the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know if you've been to a wedding feast recently, but that's norm, not normally how they end up, right? <laughs> now, again, there's some good corollaries here, and, and, and we didn't go through this at the, at the 930 service, but here we've got a little bit of time. This story is, is as much about the Old Testament and how the, the Jews treated the prophets that God sent to them to teach them about his will and his way as it is about us today, but there is us in this as well. Notice that he says, okay, go out into the highways and byways, the good and the bad, and if you look around here, you will see at least some good and bad. Amen? Amen. So anyway, Jesus finishes this story with verse 14. Here's what he says, many are called, but few are chosen. And it's seven Simple little words, but those seven words have sparked a lot of debate. What does it mean to be called? What does it mean to be chosen? And that's where today's terminology that we're going to unpack today, predestination and election, come in. Now, if you've never heard of these concepts, that's absolutely fine. But to catch up to speed, I'm going to just unpack this a little bit. We had a, we had a Baptist preacher here at, at the 930 service, and so I ran my definitions by him, and he gave me a thumbs up, and he said, those are great definitions. So we're going to go with them, and uh, we're going to unpack what these two terms mean before we dig into what else we're going to talk about this morning. So, again, these are wildly simplistic definitions. I'm painting with a very wide brush here, but... A short and simple definition of predestination is it is the way that we describe the doctrine of God determining way in the past what will happen in the future. God determines in the past what he will make true in the future. That's predestination. There's another term, election. Now, we think of election as electing our, our officers and politicians. But election is the way Christians describe who gets invited to the party and even why they get invited and who accepts and how they manage to accept. So Christians fight about this stuff, amazingly. And these fights have formed us into two general groups. The first group is called the Calvinists. Have you ever heard of Calvinists before? Yeah. So the first group is Calvinists. These guys are named after the Swiss theologian John Calvin. And, and the Calvinists sort of hinge their doctrine and their theology on the idea of God's sovereignty. Where God is completely in charge over 
every detail of life. That's his sovereignty. If he's not in charge of it all, then he's not really truly sovereign, they would say. So his sovereignty extends even to who will be saved. And Calvinists say that those whom God sovereignly decides or predestines will or will not become a Christian. Those who he decides will become Christians are the elect. There you go. Now you know what the elect are. Jesus died on the cross for the elect. And, and those people and only those people will get saved. So if you, if you don't get saved or someone you know doesn't get saved, well, it's because God decided long ago that you or they wouldn't get saved. God didn't choose you. And Jesus didn't die for you. And despite that, you will experience, justifiably, God's wrath and condemnation. Those are the Calvinists, generally speaking. The other side are those who are not Calvinist, and there's different words for how we describe those, but it's loosely all those who don't believe that. They also believe that God is sovereign and that God will ultimately bring every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. But rather than handpicking a few to get in and the rest being kicked out, they say that everyone can be saved. God wants everyone to be saved, and he predestined a plan for that to happen. Now, the plan that God predestined was Jesus dying for our sins, so that whosoever would believe on him, they would not perish, and they would have everlasting life. Now, not everyone will, these folks would say, but Jesus died so that anyone could. Those who accept Jesus are now the elect. Those who don't bow their knee in this life, he has sovereignly decreed and predestined that they will bow it in the next, or else they can expect a judgment at the, as the guy at the end of the story experienced. God will have the final word. Now, again, these are very broad brushstrokes, but amazingly, we can find ways to divide even over the will of God. And you know what? The devil loves it. The devil loves all of that. He's like, yes, dig in your heels, make your point. Because God often uses our very passion and zeal for, the devil uses our passion and zeal for God to divide us from each other. It's sad, but it's true. So how do we find common ground when we disagree with people uh, discussing topics that are very important? I think the part for me, and again, I'm learning how to do this well, the way we do this is to remember three aspects of our faith. One, Jesus, the center of our faith. The church what we've been called into, and God's love. So we're going to unpack those three things right there. Jesus, the church, and God's love. So when you're talking with someone who you disagree with, and you might very well about any number of topics, the first thing that it's important to remember is that if both are Christians, then despite your disagreement, you have Jesus in common. And so we point to Jesus. Whether I'm right or wrong on any topic really is secondary to if I'm effectively pointing people to him. When I get to heaven, the question I'm going to be asked at the gate is not what I believed about predestination or election or communion how often or baptism how deep. No. The first question is going to be, are you in Christ? 
the first part of the book of Ephesians, where the, where the concept of election and predestination show up, we find that the main theme is neither. It is Jesus who takes center stage. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians. Uh, we've got it on the screen here as well. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 where Paul writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you've got your pens and your Bibles open, you might circle any time in this passage that it refers to Jesus. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined, there's that word, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves, Jesus. Did you notice that? Verse 3, every spiritual blessing comes by way of Christ. Verse 4, we are chosen in him. Verse 5, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God through Jesus. Verse 6, grace is freely given us in the one he loves, Jesus. You see, our experience with God's grace, both before and during and after, is really first and foremost centered on Jesus. It originates and it ends, the Alpha and Omega. It begins and ends with Jesus. He is the who and the how and the why and the what. Jesus is who matters. Not our opinion. Not our interpretations. As interesting as they may be. And this requires humility. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that we see through a glass darkly. And that is very true. We only see in part, Paul says. That's why as a church, we have a saying around here. We speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where the Bible is silent. And those are both good things. But the third point is this, is that in, in all of these things, whether we speak or don't speak, in, in all things, we show love and kindness. So, we don't claim to be the last word on anything. We are seeing through a glass darkly. There are things we know, we know, we know. But there are many things that we go, we think, we think, we think. Like Paul, our main goal is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Jesus is the focus. So am I pulling people and pointing people towards him? So Jesus remains the focus. And the second aspect of this is, are we building up the church in my little group earlier this week, as we looked around the room and we had these two people having this big, heated discussion about communion, I, I had to notice the, the glazed-over eyes that everyone else at the table was exhibiting. They didn't really know, I didn't really know, how to, how to step into the conversation, and they certainly didn't. And I had to think to myself, I wonder how these new Christians are experiencing this. Are they being um, reminded of how how grateful they are to be part of the body of Christ? Or are they going, what have we got ourselves into? Here's the truth. The church really matters. You are not saved to be a solo artist where you can hold your own opinions and just say, well, forget the rest of you. No, when you were saved, you were saved into something much bigger than just yourself. You are you are redeemed to be part of 
the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, which is, it's not, a, it's not a solo artist up there with his microphone. It's a choir, a chorus of voices from, from, from ages past into ages future. It crosses national and language barriers. Every tribe, tongue, and nation and generation are part of this new thing God has doing where he's taking what used to be separate and he's making it into a new one thing, the church, the bride of Christ. First Peter 2.9 says it beautifully. He says this, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation now. You're God's special possession so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You're no longer a you. You are a we. We are a chosen people. We are nobles in this new royal priesthood and family. We are citizens of this new holy nation. We are God's special possession. And that we is so special to God that anything that divides the we is an affront to the heart and prayer of Jesus. Lord, make them one. He, he prayed as, as sweat drops of blood came down his head. He cares that we do not divide. Because if we do, we thwart our purpose. What was our purpose? To declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into wonderful light. That means that everywhere, every way, to everyone, we declare the praises of God who brought us into light by offering his life because of his love. And that's, that's the last point. We exemplify and extend God's love, even points and places where we may disagree. So where I have the deepest disagreement with my Calvinist friends sort of, sort of is connected to this idea of God's love because one of the deepest convictions of my faith is this right here, that God loves us and opened his arms wide so that we could love him back. And not just me, but the whole world. John 3.16, we know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And, and John follows that up in the very next verse. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. Because honestly, we were condemned already. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. I believe that Jesus came to rescue all of us from condemnation. He didn't come to pick and choose who would and who would not receive his love. But that means that I don't get to pick and choose either. I have to love because God loved me. 1 John four nineteen. John makes it very clear. We love because God first loved us. That's the overarching character trait of God, that he is love. So much so that in verse 8, it says this, anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. And when we diminish God's love, we diminish and constrict God. 
There, there are three ways John describes God in, in his writings. In, in the Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 5, John says that God is life. Life is bound up and found only in God. In, in John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, John writes that God is light. He says, in him there is no darkness at all. And then in John chapter 4, we just read this. It says, God is love. Now, God is many other things. He is sovereign. He is all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful. He is wise. He's infinitely, consistently, and perfectly wise. He's faithful. He's always and unchangingly true. God is good. Why did the psalmist write, taste and see how good God is? And God is just. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. Deuteronomy says he's a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. But behind every one of those adjectives is a reminder of those nouns. <laughs> God is life and light and love. That's why I'm very suspicious of any arguments or doctrines or opinions that diminish or constrict in any way God's love for us. And because God's is love, I can say with absolute confidence that God loves you. God loves me and God loves you. 1 John 4, 16. So we know and rely on the love of God. Man, I don't know what brings you confidence in your life, whether it's a full bank account or a car that's, you know, in well-maintained or a house or a job that, you know, you really feel secure in. But we're told as believers that we can rely on the love God has for us. Romans eight thirty eight. I'm convinced, Paul writes, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or in the earth, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And that, that idea of not being ever being able to separate from God's love leads us to other doctrines that you might have heard from. But, but I want to I caution you against believing too deeply in this idea that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, even though Paul says it right here. Because the truth is, you can separate yourself from God's love. The Scriptures make it clear that we can reject and walk away and turn away from the offer of love that God makes us. You say, I don't believe that, Tim. Well, can I just tell you that I believe it is very hard to walk away from God's love. It is so much harder than you think it is. And you may think you've walked away and God says, no, no, you got to travel a long distance to get away from my love. But Jesus says to his disciples, listen, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And if he can be rejected, then I believe he can be rejected now. Don't reject Jesus. Don't do it. Paul, writing to that young pastor, Timothy, says this. When you're preaching, I want you to make it very clear to the people you're preaching to. God wants all people 
to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, all people. But the sad truth is this, that just like those nobles in the story Jesus told us, some won't. Some will reject the invitation. And some, like the last guy, will try to convince themselves that they can get in some other way than through Jesus. That was the guy that showed up and said, oh, yeah, that was for the rest of them. I get to make my own rules about eternal life. And the king says, no, 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 you don't. No, you don't. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son, Jesus. So this morning, if you have not made a decision to follow Jesus fully, today is the day to accept Christ, become part of his church, begin to experience his love in ways that you, can only, you can't imagine at this stage. We're going to share in a time of communion this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you are the king at the banquet, and you have extended the invitation. And today, we are here because we have said yes to that invitation. We want to be part of this gathering. We want to come to the table and take our seat and enjoy the grace that you have uh, offered us and promised us, the grace that you have freely bestowed on us. But God, there's a little part of us that always always uh, connects with that last guy who says, yeah, I know, but, but maybe I can do it on my own. Maybe I can make up my own rules. So this morning, we examine ourselves. Search us, examine our thoughts and our hearts, and where we have not fully submitted to your sovereign rule in our lives, bring that to our attention so that we can repent and graciously receive and joyfully receive and gratefully receive your offer of forgiveness. We want to acknowledge in every way that you are.